In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. For all existence, human behavior influences human behavior. Laughter, yawning, and even the adoption of language and attitudes. Influence and persuasion exists and has always existed. What we are experiencing now is a rise in adolescence identifying as mentally ill. What has changed? What are the contributing factors to this dramatic increase? On today's podcast, is mental illness contagious? Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning Sean. Roger. I was reading through something that Roger had posted on Twitter. And this happened to be on Valentine's Day of all days. And I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I, I'm interested in psychology, sociology. Took those classes in college, and I think it really led me down the path in my career, choosing to go marketing and advertising, because there was a connection there but it was also a connection to the business world. So I, I love that idea of, of uh, how on the business side you can motivate somebody or influence them in a certain way and measure it. And those things really fascinated me. But on Roger's Twitter, on Valentine's Day. Not Valentine's Day. It was. February 15th. Oh, I thought it was the 14th. Nope, next day. Oh, you said, we are seeing a social contagion effect with teenagers identifying as mentally ill. Interested to hear people's comments and factors influencing this. So my question to you, Roger, what are you seeing, hearing in your sessions that stood out and what made you say social contagion? Mm -hmm. Sometimes things just are, are placed in front of you, mm -hmm. right? And I'm a, I'm a believer in that we all have, have purpose and sometimes things are placed in, in, in front of us to be able to address and to think about and to talk about. In a very short amount of time, a number of things were, were placed in front of me. But let me say, like this, these are trends we've been, we've been observing in the field for 10, 15, 20 years where it accelerated with social media. So some of the things that we're seeing in the field are parents who are really concerned about their vulnerable teenagers who end up being part of a, of a certain group, and maybe that group is openly talking about their mental health and might be showing self-injury or um, posting about going to a, a hospital or posting about being on psychiatric drugs. And then what the parents begin to reveal is their child begins to adopt certain similar behaviors to be part of the group. Other things that we're seeing are um, the rise on social media of um, identifying as mentally ill, showing self-injury uh, and uh, ad ad adopting like hashtags of like my illness for very young people, uh, age 13, 12, 13, 14, and it almost spreading like in an infectious way into clusters within schools. The social contagion effect is also being discussed in the context of the rising rates of um, confusion about gender. So transgender as a, as a condition historically affected approximately 
0.01 of the population. Mm -hmm. It's like one in 10,000 in the general population would identify as transgender. And the majority of cases were male to female. And it would emerge around the ages of two to four with extreme body hate or identifying themselves as the opposite gender and um, dressing as, you know, as the opposite gender. And really, you know, from that age all the way through adulthood, really believing that, that, they're, that they're the opposite gender. Mm -hmm. But in the past 10 years, it's skyrocketed. So when it was one in 10,000, we now see it being 2% of the high school population, the teen population. And now it's majority female girls. So when you go from one in 10,000 to one in 50 teenagers, mm -hmm. there's, there's something that's emerging for us to evaluate and study. And the social contagion effect, that idea that behaviors and emotions can spread, become infectious, you can adopt the behaviors of the group, is one of those social phenomenons that we are starting to see. So a group of um, vulnerable, majority teenage girls, where it's developmentally you know, somewhat normal to struggle with your developing body, uh, there's always been a percentage, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, listen to it, what the hell is society doing to teenage girls, where mm -hmm. we talked about the development of eating disorders, mm -hmm. uh, of self-injury. So this body discomfort, body dysmorphia at that age range um, is part of a normal developmental pro process, but now we're seeing a skyrocket in identifying as transgender. I think what's most concerning to um, many of us out there is how it can lead to a, a medical intervention even without parental consent. And now they've been doing it long enough where we're seeing this, um, what's called detransitioning. So the medical intervention doesn't relieve the gender dysphoria. It almost, in, it intensifies the distress and leads to uh, suicidal ideation, completed suicide, and chronic mental health problems. A lot of these individuals now are detransitioning. Okay. So one way to potentially think about that is social contagion effect. We're open to a lot of different conversations today on the role society, culture, and the progressive left has on shaping uh, behavior, how it's been infiltrated into an agenda within our schools, within our communities, how parents have lost kind of their own rights over their own children, and the confusion on how um, parents who are progressive in nature and how to respond to this effect within their families. So hopefully we can get into some very good dialogue about this. So let's backtrack a little bit and um, let's start with, well, social contagion itself and why there are so many out there that would kind of refute the claim, your claim today about, oh, how can these ideas be contagious? But in 1988, you know, a book was published called Manufacturing Consent. And it started to talk about how uh, media and big business were kind of working together and basically creating these powerful ideological institutions and we're carrying out systemic propaganda and, and not not in a way that was nefarious but like you said some were positive ad campaigns now we're talking about marketing and then you jump ahead to some of the studies that are coming out um 
about neuromarketing and about how watching things and even things like the Stroop effect, right, have our, our brains just react sometimes in a very positive way. So I don't think that um, I don't think that the idea of this uh, contagion, social contagion is wrong. I think that there, it's out there. It's always been out there. And there's, there's actually studies, correct? Well-established. Yeah, well-established. Right? So we go back to that. Now, can we just talk a little bit about the process of social contagion before we get into some of the specifics? Like, yeah, because it's been around forever. Correct. Um, it, it, so it's, it's a human just, phenomenon. So can we, it's can, how we learn. Can we all share examples of what normal contagious behaviors may be? Yeah. Smiling. Yeah. Smiling, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the mirror, well, mirror, the mirror neurons also right, play a yeah. role in this as well. So, so uh, there's another one. Uh, yawning. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, Kelly said something really important. So What's the role that? of mirror neurons, yeah. you know, is we are social creatures and we learn through modeling. Mm -hmm. So that le social learning theory and exposure to other behaviors, humans mimic them. So do dogs. So do other uh, animal groups, right? Yep. It's you learn from others around you. So it's not an, it's, it's should be viewed as an evolutionarily adaptive mechanism and um, who you surround yourself with, you can adopt those kind of behaviors. You see couples do this as well. Yeah. You know, you, you adopt a, a similar kind of uh, cadence, tone, conversational aspects. Um, totally. Think back to high school, right? Um, and I would say, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that young people are definitely more susceptible to um, to these type of like adoption of other people's personalities because they haven't really established any type of personal identity yet. They're just trying to figure things out, right? Right. Okay. So in high school, how many times did you maybe change your your approach to your persona? Right. right? Either you're the jock, or maybe you're the uh, the emo kid, or um, maybe you're the preppy one all of a sudden you start wearing like really nice clothes like you're part of the country club like there are people that and i think there's god you can probably watch back to tv shows in the 80s and 90s it was like a trope well, like the the daughter or the son keeps ad adopting somebody's personality because they want this friend to like them and group identity through phys the way you look physically and even just like i said change of clothes sneakers are a big thing like anything yeah. so language using i words. just wanted to make sure we established that this is real it's always been there and so those individuals that say social contagion come yeah. on you know give me a break that's a theory well a theory is an idea that has yet to be proven but i believe this has been proven over and over again yeah it's it's so odd to face other mental health professionals uh, backlash by bringing this up, it just speaks a little bit to how the field is disconnected from science. And it is so, it's such more like a response to a cultural effect than it is a true science effect. Mental health clinicians, God bless them, they have big hearts, right? So it's almost like anyone who comes in front of you, even the idea of thinking that they could be feigning a symptom or they could be influenced by a group is so contrary to how they want to think about human nature. And so hopefully in this podcast, we're talking about things that are real, science-based, and we have full acceptance of what is human nature. And I don't think you can help others who are coming in in mental, dis in mental distress unless you have a very strong understanding of the culture and context in which they live. So here's the, okay, so you said in the last 10 to 15 years or so, there's been, a, there's been some trends, there's been some changes. Trends. So here's where I think we could maybe establish this. So if we talk about social contagion, 
This is information that you either see online or on television or whatever. Perhaps it's an idea. Perhaps it's information. I watch it. I process it. I share it, right? That's the basic premise. But in the last 10 to 15 years, we've had social media emerge. In the social media, what we know is that as of today, things like TikTok don't even, you don't even have to press a play button. They play automatically and you're interactive with it. So when we had televisions in everybody's house, yes, it was there, but that was more passive. Now you are in, you are actually actively engaging, right? So you are controlling the information that is coming into your mind Mm -hmm. and you're purposefully liking Mm -hmm. the things that only you like, which to me would spell a much, a much stronger social contagion theory, right? Great point. And so if, if you ever watch the social dilemma that net that Netflix documentary, so everything you do like, it's like setting up an algorithm, right? And all that information is being like filtered to you, mm-hmm. and it is framing your reality. So an interesting story, Sean. Sean said, like, why why just start posting that this week? Well, this has been local and national news. My daughter's high school had to cancel school this week for the equivalent of what is a burn book about teacher and other students that was posted online. Now, this is a progressive art school. And this is where you see the social progressive left spin out of control into the point where it's unmanageable. So you have artists. It's a a charter art school for for acting, for visual arts, for dance, um, for music. So... We've talked about the role of creative, the vulnerability for uh, creative individuals and experiencing their emotions intensely and how modern society can, can view that as an illness, right? If you experience your emotions intensely, that could be sadness, that can be guilt. You have greater propensity to develop, uh, quote unquote, depression and anxiety symptoms. Well, this, the, the 2% of those who would identify um, as having gender dysphoria or um, confusion about their gender is much more than 2% in a school like this. But what we saw um, is this hypersensitivity that exists to being either misgendered by the teachers because the teachers can't keep up, right? And talking to, talking to my daughter, you might have somebody who um, identifies as female one day and the very next week they're changing their pronouns and they're changing their names. And the confusion that exists is they might be shifting back and forth by, between how they're, they're presenting as far as their dress and the uh, traditional social norms. So, so the teachers be, are having trouble keeping up with the pronouns, pronouns that they're using. Difficult time keeping up with the pronouns. So now they are identifying themselves to be traumatized and if they're traumatized, they have developed like this burn book where they're putting everyone together and they're calling out teachers. Can you imagine being a teacher in this environment? Calling out teachers for misgendering them. Um, they're putting a, them online? Like they're online. using social media to do that? Um, th- the school's Google Docs. So, um, it's like a shared drive. A shared drive within the school, which is where kids also do their schoolwork. It was more than just that. They were calling out other kids for sexual assault. Which in which, uh, listen, we this we have a trauma center here, and we we work with social sexual assault victims, um, rape victims. Obviously, that that is um, a horrific crime with uh, significant mental health effects. But they're they're sometimes talking about being sexually assaulted in terms of like being 
kissed. So they start, you know, accusing others of, of sexual assault. Um, and they're talking about statements that teachers or words that teachers use. Basically, they are, um, basically they have created this, this response through social media that the school is not responsive to their needs, their mental health needs, their gender pronouns. Uh, it's an unsafe environment. And I'll tell you what, you, you, you couldn't find in this region a more progressive school than this arts academy. But it's almost been this reward now um, for victimization. And there's a hypersensitivity to it. So there was a backlash and then a sit out. And saw it on the news. It was, yeah, this is local and national yeah, news. Yeah. They had to cancel school for the rest of the week. For the rest of the week? I didn't know. I thought they canceled it just for that day. Oh, no, I thought it was a day. For yeah. the rest of the week. So wow. this is a school that also was not in person all last year. School starts again on Tuesday because there's a holiday on Monday. And you see a lot of the same. I mean, their response is poor again, right? They have to hire private investigators, <laughs> firms to come in to attend to the teens' um, stories uh, to see how, you know, the degree of truth there is to an unsafe environment. So now your 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds are getting this level of attention. They were able to, to get a couple days out of, out of school and they're using that, that language, that social justice language about safe spaces and, and other things and not realizing their role in creating this within their specific culture. It's a legitimate problem. Okay. Now that's not to minimize when, um, when environments or groups or, or businesses really do have a, a culture that is oppressive in any way. Like obviously these things occur in society. That's not what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a social contagion effect where teachers are being called out. Other students are being called out and it's the it's presenting themselves as if they're being traumatized in a school environment because they were misgendered there was a video um it was good morning america did a story about tiktok and the role in this and uh let me just turn up my volume give me one sec and teens on TikTok self-diagnosing themselves with rare mental health disorders in, in most cases that they don't have after watching videos on the social platform. It's a story first reported by the Wall Street Journal. Ariel Reshef has more. DID typically occurs between the ages of six and nine. Experts warning about what they call a troubling trend on TikTok that could leave some teens believing they have a serious mental disorder. Posts with the hashtag disassociative identity disorder and borderline personality disorder viewed hundreds of millions of times. Some of those videos listing possible signs to look out for and encouraging viewers to, to self-diagnose. So yeah, comment on I that. I want to comment on that. Hundreds first, of millions. Hundreds of millions. Yeah. First of all, Sean, you were right. It was, um, it was Valentine's Day when I originally sent it. It just got retweeted so many times and there were so many comments after that. Listen, I, I, I said that we are seeing a social contagion effect with teenagers identifying as mentally ill. And I was interested to hear people's comments and factors in influencing it. And really, it's making mental illness trendy. I mean, that's what we are seeing. 
And I think what, what got a lot of vitriol from other mental health professionals around the globe from one of my tweets was I talked about how we are seeing more and more that teenagers are wanting to achieve a diagnosis and get psychiatric drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not because they need it or they ne- necessarily meet criteria. It's about their desire to fit in with their established group. So, I, Kelly, you brought up social media and, and the role that that plays. And one component of that is the use of hashtags. How easy is it for somebody to find a particular topic or a group just by clicking on a hashtag? And then the interacting of those videos and the scrolling and the engagement, you almost kind of create this bubble around you. Mm-hmm. And that bubble becomes your reality. And you think that everything within there is the truth and that you fit into that, that that's a part of you. It's it's frightening how easy someone can get trapped into there. I don't know if you... um. During your, your readings and your research, did you ever come across Damon Santola? He's a UPenn sociologist uh, professor. And I remembered a, um, a Hidden Brain podcast. It was about a year ago. He was talking about contagions, social contagions. And the story that he was using was in the space of social influence in terms of um, movements and adoptions of, in, in culture. But I remembered him describing how things become contagious, and he was using Twitter as the story. And the Twitter story is what what stuck with me, and I listened to that episode again. It was about a year ago. I'll, I'll include it in the show summary if somebody wants to go back and listen to it. But he was describing how Twitter grew in the Bay Area. It had been established for a while. Of course, it was in San Francisco. People were working there. People knew it, and it really wasn't taking off. But what ended up happening is that on one day, there was an earthquake, And when that earthquake happened, people on Twitter that were primarily using it in the Bay Area began coordinating with each other. And what Twitter was able to see was that the spread of users um, in terms of being contagious didn't kind of like break up into major cities as one would assume. It was almost like a lava flow that went down the coastline of California. And it went from the Bay Area towards San Jose. It didn't pop up in Los Angeles. It just worked its way down. And the way that he described it, it was that it was, um, it was uh, spreading spatially through neighborhoods. So basically, it was these strong ties of people that had connections to one another through neighborhoods and close relationships that allowed it to spread. And then eventually, it popped up in Massachusetts. Not in New York, not in Chicago, not in Los Angeles. It was Massachusetts because there was a strong connection because of school. A lot of people went to MIT and then were working in the Bay Area, and that's how that connection happened. And for some reason, that story kind of stuck with me. But then he started in the podcast talking about simple contagions and complex contagions. And the way that he describes it was that a simple contagion, when you think of social media, it's like fireworks going off almost like the spread of a virus, right? You'll have maybe like 10 pockets and a firework goes off, firework goes off, firework goes off, and it spreads to those, those people that are connected. Whereas a complex contagion is, like, a contagion is like a fishing net. And those fishing nets are much stronger ties where fireworks are weak ties. And as he was describing this, I was thinking like, well, boy, this is really interesting if you think about what's happening in terms of what you're seeing, Raj. Um, with parents coming in and their concerns 
and the social contagion is, yeah, they're getting exposed to a lot of these things that maybe haven't existed when we were growing up or the awareness of them. But all it takes is one person in your close group to adopt something and how quickly it can influence your group if you're a group of like six or seven people. Yeah. I think it's important to note that this obviously the uh, desire to identify as as mentally ill doesn't affect most people, right? Mm-hmm. It's we're talking about a subset of the teen population and who are they? They're the ones who might struggle more with trying to adopt an identity. So the level of identity disturbance and its impairment in their ability to be able to make strong connections, friendships and and respond to their social world in an effective of way, there's always going to be a percentage of people maybe who were who deviated from the norm on that. So there's the normal identity development that exists throughout those high school ages. And then there's somebody who might be struggling a bit more. So they might be much more sensitive to interpersonal rejection. And with being more interpersonally sensitive, your desire to fit in intensifies. And as you know, from like being a a teenager yourself, the more you try to fit in, you know, sometimes the worse it is, the more they get rejected. So if you, if you adopt a, a group of people who are very similar, right, then they are much more easily influenced by one another. And to be part of a group could mean to also be part of a hospitalization center. We saw a tremendous rise in adolescent females being admitted into psychiatric hospitalizations over the pandemic. Now let's look at the cultural factors that may have influenced it. Lockdown, so there's that social isolation, and your social connection is through social media. And if you get hospitalized, then you actually get to be part into a group setting. That need for social belonging is really important. So we without a doubt saw this, Mr. Psychiatrist who posted on on Twitter. Like this is a phenomenon that we are seeing. I have had in front of me teenagers who were clearly feigning symptoms. Now, how do we know that, right? And that was like the question that, you know, people couldn't understand how you can um, be able to assess someone feigning symptoms. Well, first of all, it's always been there in in, in psychology. Some of the psychological tests that are provided have what's called lie scales, right? So you can see the incongruence. But one of the things that's really important when a psychologist is doing uh, clinical interviewing and spending time with somebody over, you know, 30 days, for example, is you get to see the incongruence between emotion, thought, and affect. The other thing is they do admit it. When you get in a trusting, safe, and confidential uh, environment, a teen will admit this, their desire for belonging, and uh, mimicking behaviors to be part of the group is something that can be disclosed within a therapy session. Um, I remember I had one teen who was going to her psychiatrist and, you know, they'll give them these really weak uh, screening measures. She would get a kick out of pathologizing herself on the screening measure and having the psychiatrist give her three, four, five different diagnoses. The problem with this is she was 14 years old and she was also getting new prescriptions. So when I talk about the, the lack of science, um, empirical kind of foundation in, in, in psychiatry, you know, that's one of the examples. So these things really do happen. The other thing that happens is those who truly are suffering, the ones who, um, let's say, are self-injuring or suicidal, tends to be, um, for a large group, very intrapersonal. So um, there's shame around it. They hide it. 
They have to wear long sleeves. They cut themselves on their thighs. Um, they're certainly not posting it on social media. That's something different. That's that interpersonal aspect. So we're looking at function. So those who are, um, who are self-injuring or really depressed, when they're talking about this in their peer groups and their school system, about people calling themselves Lexahoes from the drug Lexapro, smiling, laughing, getting attention for identifying as depressed. That's that incongruence. And it's very invalidating to those who really are suffering, right? The ones who are really depressed. So that's also getting disclosed in our sessions. So for all those comments on social media who thought this was misogyny and myself as a psychologist. That was crazy that they called you that. Unbelievable. I thought that was a little overboard. Yep. I mean, it's, I, I, said, I said, you know, you put a Twitter, what is it, 240 characters out there, it becomes a modern-day Rorschach exam because people begin to project their own view of the world on there. So you just talk about the social contagion effect. All of a sudden, anyone who comes into therapy is faking it, and it's misogyny. It's not what we're talking about, right? This is a, a, a phenomenon within our culture that we have to account for when we're treating mental health conditions. Now, the, the, the other appropriate comments that, were, that were people were making, well, that person's still in pain. Agreed. Not denying the fact that they, they need help. It's about what kind of help. And that's really important. I'm going to actually, I'll let, I'm going to throw it out to you guys. I'm going to find uh, a comment that really highlights this from a mental health professional, which is, you know, one of the things I unfortunately have to speak out about is we have to be concerned where mental health treatment worsens the condition and harms society, which will be another dialogue for us in, in today's uh, podcast because it's, again, the environmental response to what somebody is doing, the response from a clinician, the response from a doctor, the response from a teacher, the response from parents, the response from friends. There was one, there was one comment um, that was made about how is it possible that these... Um these young people that you're saying are kind of celebrating online in that, in that way, is it possible that that's a coping mechanism for them to Absolutely. heal? Um, I use the word social rewards. Okay. Social rewards is another word for a, it's a reinforcer. It increases the likelihood it's going to happen because it serves a function. What are some of the, the, the social rewards that exist for identifying as mentally ill or self injuring and showing it on, on your Snapchat? Well, one is you might get a lot of people, you know, responding, I love you, right? If you threaten suicide on social media and then you get about a hundred comments about how important you are and how important your life is on one end, uh, if somebody really is struggling in that moment, that's social support, but we can see how then it can increase from a social contagion perspective, why people would want to make threats of suicide because you're told that you're loved. You're told that your life is important. And so does, if it decreases suicidal ideation and suicidal threats, right, then um, obviously that's an effective societal response, but we're not seeing that. It increases it. So there's a social reward through that positive attention. Group identity is another one. So if you, are, you, have, you self-identify as mentally ill or a depressive or bipolar or this idea that, you have, that you're, you're mentally ill and you will be for life, 
you're now part of a select group that is actually celebrated now on, on social media in an odd way, right? This whole decreased stigma campaign allows for everyone now to be open and discuss themselves and their, and their own mental health problems. The opposite end of the, of the spectrum here about where this is problematic is, is people with very normal experiences for living life are now identifying that as an illness and then, see, and then celebrating that and it's becoming part of their identity. Yeah, you talked about one um, in our conversations in here about clients requesting a note for uh, to give to a professor. Yeah, so, so that's the other one I put on here was the escape of responsibilities, right? Mm-hmm. So people can now use their quote-unquote mental illness from getting out of things that are stressful. What are stressful? Taking tests. What's stressful? Going to school. What is stressful? Doing a report taking an exam, um, engaging in society becomes now stressful. And if God forbid you feel stress, you are now exacerbating your mental illness. So the responsible thing to do from adults in your life or doctors or teachers is to say, don't do those things because it's going to exacerbate your illness, which is ridiculous. Absolutely, fundamentally ridiculous and harmful. And that's where a lack of knowledge and education and understanding about how you develop resilience, coping, and overcome emotional challenges in your life um, is required as a form of mental health treatment and support in these systems. And we're going to the opposite end um, because you're identifying mental health conditions in the same way as if somebody was, for example, handicapped and in a wheelchair. So that was another comment on social media that um, accommodations are given. So thinking about a teen with, with intense emotions or labeling themselves as mentally ill as if they're fragile and disabled and they require accommodations is a harmful idea. No, it's not the same thing as, as having a bathroom for somebody who's on a wheelchair. Because the, the actual accommodations for someone who might be struggling with anxiety or sadness could intensify the anxiety and the sadness. Because exposure-based treatments work. Yes, do you need support? Does there need to be a scaffolding effect to get somebody to do things that they were struggling with? Absolutely. But that's not what we're doing in schools. And that's not what's happening in, in general society. It is actually being able to escape responsibility. The other thing, that, and, and this is harmful, and the teens out there are listening or the parents out there might be aware of this, other teens will use their mental illness, quote unquote, their identification of a mental illness to punish somebody else. So if they're hurt, they might say, you made me cut. You make me want to kill myself. So they use it as a weapon. And it's this idea, again, that emotions are a mental illness. So if you experience intense hurt, now my depression, you've, you've hurt me, I'm ill, I have depression, and you made me want to cut myself. And in some cases, the school will actually respond. The principal will bring the other kid in and, and say, you made that girl want to cut. And Again, pun- another social the, reward. Punish the, the, the uh, student right in front of the other person, right? That does happen. Yeah. So I, 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 I tweeted this. I have had teenage clients who feign symptoms, threaten suicide, and over-report on checklists in order to be hospitalized and placed on psychiatric drugs in order to fit in with the group. 
and adopt an identity of mentally ill. Now, again, that is not most people. That's a percentage. And it's a cultural phenomenon that is emerging in the social media era. We have to be aware of it. I just want to kind of scroll through some of the uh, the comments. I mean, um, some of them are like really offensive because they're telling me I should lose my license for such a comment, right? So if I make a statement of something that's emerging in society, um, there are people trying to cancel me and say I should lose my license to be able to to treat people. And they might say things, they, they assume that, if you come in to see me, I believe you're faking it. That's crazy. So as a clinical psychologist, and again, culture and context, behavior within culture and context matter. So it's our responsibility, our ethical responsibility to understand how certain actions or behaviors function within a culture. I want to bring it back to um, the sessions. You've been meeting with parents um, for the DBT adolescent program. And you threw out the word contagious behaviors as something a parent had said. Do you believe, I'm just, I'm bringing it back to this, um, this Twitter thing, right? Um, uh, how it, the adoption of Twitter and how it spread complex contagion. Are we, are we tying what's happening right now exclusively to social media because my assumption is that when it comes to somebody adopting a behavior like this, social media plays a role, but it's always somebody else in your, your personal group that's usually doing it as well. So when they say contagious behaviors, are they applying it to social media or are they applying it to the group that their child may be interacting with uh, physically in terms of them all adopting a certain behavior? Well, there's an interaction effect. You can't separate it. So... Obviously, the greater social media trends are affecting the smaller group that you're exposed to every day. Mm -hmm. So it's both. So you, you get exposed to your, your friend group who's also influenced by the greater trend. And you begin to start, start adopting similar behaviors within that group. So my point is there could be one person in a group. Let's say I have, there's a group of um, six females in high school. One of those females is actively engaged in social media, getting exposed to these topics, these things that you're, you're seeing and, and you're talking about right now. The other five are not. That one starts I, taking actions within the group. Yeah, I, I have to stop. Almost every teenager is exposed to this now. You can't say there's one. I, as, but jumping talk, in and, and, and reviewing all these specific um, topics, it's just... I. That's not where I don't imagine they're all spending their time on TikTok no. and social media scrolling through hashtags for mental. No, no, but they're, but they're all exposed to it, right? So were you a goth? Remember remember the 90s of the goths, the, the goths of the 90s and the 2000s, mm -hmm. right? Yep. You're dressed in black. You yep. might wear black lipstick. Um, you might be exposed to certain uh, music and those music and maybe some other things you were exposed to kind of glorified a certain reaction or response. So you might not have been spending your time or dedicating your attention to it, but you were aware of it. That's right. All right. That's the best way to look at it now. Now, I think one of the worst things for uh, teenagers is idle time. If you have way too much time on your hand, like you don't have enough engagement with academics, extracurriculars, clubs, then where are you going to dedicate and devote your attention to? This is where I want to draw the attention to. You're, you're, is knowing social contagious 
uh, contagion exists and it can negatively influence you, how can you use social contagion to have a positive influence on you? The idle time is is, is the negative portion of so it. So it's not about talking about things as you know positive or negative. They're just accepting as true. They're part of being a human being, and they're and it's part of us. All of us are influenced by our environment. But you can combat we're, it. We're talking about a a phenomenon that exists in the social media era for this generation of teens. And we have to be aware of where what they're exposed to. So if idle time means that there's more time into your devices and also more time in your own head, then that becomes correlated and associated, I think, with negative mental health reactions. But if you're too busy, right? You're involved with sports. You're involved with extracurriculars. You're a good student. Your family, you're engaging with your family. You have less time to devote your attention to such things, right? So if we're going to start providing advice to, to parents and educators, and this is why the, the response to the pandemic was so harmful to this particular generation, because the last thing you want to do is isolate them from activities and engagement, because now your whole world is through that screen. And social connection and that social engagement is necessary for development. So you're not, Sean, you're not going to be able to talk about this in terms of positive or negative. You have to, you have to talk about Why not? it in. Why not? Cause, cause social contagion could be being part of a, a group like a sports team or an because art it's neither positive nor negative. It just is. So the fact that we're influenced by our environment is just something that is what you identify to be positive or what another person um, identifies to be positive is often like individually related and based on our own particular values, right? So other things that are really important, I guess you want to talk about where can they be potentially harmful or ineffective? Well, we're talking about that. Um, when you're exposed to pro-ana uh, social media content and website, what's, Anna, what's anorexia, pro, okay. right? So you begin to glorify being Un, unhealthy and underweight and even they give you a nice plan on how to follow in order to become uh really thin and you're rewarded for it right so that is yeah, obviously a harmful a negative harmful. health effect there's a, a a positive way of using social media so there is a I, I read a story about a female who was anorexic struggled with it she didn't want to completely remove herself from social media but she knew she would be exposed to those triggers so what she started doing was following plus size models because she wanted to remind herself that beauty comes in many forms and that wouldn't trigger her. Is that a positive approach towards I overcoming? Don't, I, I don't think social so. Contagion? I mean, there's your, the words that you used are part of this whole movement trigger, right? What is a trigger? I use trigger because you, I you thought use trigger because yeah. you're exposed to it. That's social contagion. Yep. Right. So what is trigger? It's an emotion. Yep. And it's a it's a an aversive emotion, and if you feel it, somehow it leads to a behavior. No, that's wrong. Listen, um, I never used the word trigger, not with my clients, and not in my my world. With my clients, I used the word prompt. So I try to understand things in context. So what prompted you to do this? What mm -hmm. were you feeling or stuff? Because if it's trigger, then you you're into this realm of trigger warnings, avoidance, where you begin to continue with the same narrative that people are fragilized if they feel an emotion, which has led to the judgment of that emotion 
and then identify identifying that as mentally ill. So how do you combat it? You don't feel that emotion apparently. And that's why people take drugs. That's why they do what they just did. Oh, I can't look at pictures of a thin person, which is impossible. You're going to be exposed to it. So I have to look at plus size people. So therefore I can change. I don't have to have that feeling around it. That is associated with poor mental health. Feel all the emotions that come with being a human being. Now let's talk about how can you be effective in, re- in reaction to that. Emotions aren't the problem. It's how people respond to their emotions. And this is where our culture, the education system, the industries that exist, the medical establishment, they want to fragilize you and victimize you in a way that some things that you feel are harmful to you. So they can benefit from it. And now it's blowing up in everyone's face. I was I kind of viewed this whole this whole thing. I'm trying to like sum it up to familiarity. When we're familiar with things in our life, we feel comfortable, yep. confident, right? Would you agree with that? Yep. So the idea that familiarity leads to liking and the more information that I'm watching on social media that I become familiar with, I start to hit hearts and likes. And all of a sudden I go on my phone, right? And then I'm, I'm 14 years old and I, I don't really fit in. You know, I'm, I'm having a difficult time. I'm struggling, but I go on my phone, I'm on TikTok and all of a sudden everything that I'm watching just makes me feel good, right? It's all familiar, familiar. And all of that coupled with information that they're sharing with me, am I going to be more prone to believing the information that I'm seeing because of the familiarity or am I going to be less prone to believing it? I believe that there, there is intention and I don't always think of it as positive intent. I think that social media is amplifying information that um, in some cases, some teenagers are not ready for yet. Yeah. But I'm going back to knowing that exists as an individual, you have a choice of who you want to follow and what you want to like and knowing what you, you have a choice. Hold on a second here. We're talking about sometimes nine, 10, 11, 12 year olds young and they're being exposed to things purposely. And if they like it, it then increases that that con- well, content is going to be- A 10-year-old should not be on social media. Well, they are. They are. They- and, and, and so are 12. I can apply it to 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old. And then if, if you like it or your friend shares it with you, then that content is increased in frequency on your feed. I'm not going to say they have a choice. We're not going to treat uh, vulnerable children like they're, um, they're adults who have this strong capacity to make decisions. So what you're saying is that this needs to be controlled by families. Yes, okay. That, that there has to be uh, a management. To be the ravine. parent has to, has to be able to manage the social media world. And it's difficult. It's not easy because these kids are very tech savvy and they figure out all these different ways to be, um, to be able to get access because it is their social world, but it's the life in the world that we live in. And what are we seeing? We're seeing parents more afraid to parent. Absolutely. And because some of the, some of the comments that are, that are told back to me is I don't want to remove that because they're going to be on the outside, right? It's that fear of missing out. That in the future, they use the future. If they don't understand this technology, somehow they're not going to succeed. Exactly. And I always thought that that was a little funny because you can always learn technology. You can learn it very quickly. And why, do, and why won't professionals speak out? They're scared because of can- cancel culture. So if I'm watching something and let's say there's a positive message and I, I enjoy it and I pass that along, 
that message could go to my friends, could then be spread. Yes. I don't disagree with you on that. I think the 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 idea for this podcast and is that we're focusing on why so many if there's so much positivity to media in general, why are why are we seeing more and more anxiety, depression, and diagnoses than ever before? You brought it up once uh, early on in, in one of the first podcasts. You said, you know, almost like uh, challenging Roger. You said we live in one of the most peaceful times. Yep. Our two generations now have really not gone into a major world war. Yep. Why are and then we brought up the question: Why are so many people suffering then? If we have such an amazing society. Why are so many people suffering? And this would just be one of those 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 ideas. Social contagion is causing so many negative ideas to to be you know to be propagated. And and since social contagion has been widely established science, it is used by industry um, in order to be able to sell products. There is a benefit, a benefit for industry, whether it's the pharmaceutical industry, the fashion industry, to create insecurity, provoke insecurity within the population. We now have close to 20% of females identifying as self-injurious. 20%. One out of every five teenage girls are now deliberately self-harming. But it's also a tool to promote positivity. It's a tool that's been used, and it's used in dialectical behavior therapy, the group therapy component. When you get people together in a room for a group therapy session, there is influence that's happening over one another. There's no doubt. All it we're talking about in fitness. We're, all, we're only talking about how how groups can influence the other, right? Yes. But today's topic today is social contagion on mental health related issues. It's on mental. The, Your I, mental health is, with is mental about illness. living a life worth living. So mental health can you can heal. You can get better. What's the solution? Just to stay off social media, you have to have a positive outlook and a positive approach to things. And knowing that social contagion theory exists, how can you use it to benefit But you're you? also, uh, I forget, how old are you? 43. Okay, you're 43 years old and you're, you have a you're prefrontal cortex and rational thought. These are, these are children. Well, I'm, uh, they're you're not, focusing on adolescent. This doesn't. Uh, but, this but affects them severely. But there's a group okay, of adults. So are you saying? To but are you saying that so uh, media in general yep. uh, affects adults more positively than children? I'm not seeing that. I'm still not seeing. Yeah, that. it's oh, the data. I'm seeing the negativity. data is overwhelming. That the more exposure to social media, the worse your mental health. Yeah. Okay. So now we're talking about solutions stop exposing yourself to those. Like w there's other ways of living your life. You don't have to be on your stupid phone all the time. Correct. Get off your so, damn phone. So true. You know how hard that is for developing brains. We've already developed habit, cue, routine. And what is that what the, the habit cycle is, right? A cue, routine, and then you get the pleasure or reward. But cue, routine, reward. It's even harder for, for that age group. Um, that's why they're, they're more vulnerable for risk-taking behavior, uh, substance abuse, because it's seeking out that dopamine rush. Right, and it's without the established prefrontal cortex, which is able to predict consequences. So, parents or communities, community leaders, and adults almost have to act as that prefrontal cortex. We talk about this for you know how we respond to our kids. It's almost like when you're walking a dog and you have that, and you have a um, a leash on them. You have to give them some room to explore. But if if you're not careful, they're going to dart right into traffic, and that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing a generation of kids darting into the middle of traffic, and it's a problem. And parents are afraid to parent 
Professionals are afraid to be canceled. We're not having these conversations. We're not developing treatments around it. We're not having appropriate controls. Listen, we're, we're, we now live in a society and a culture where scientific debate can be canceled, censored, but teenagers can have free reign at pornography where it can depict violence against women. So you're talking about another vulnerable age where your hormones are going crazy and you're a sexual being and your exposure to understanding sex is through repeated uh, viewing of, of pornography, which has no control, social controls on it. But if we want to talk about like vaccination safety and efficacy, it'll get censored. This is the society and culture that you're, that you're living in. So the whole positive viewpoint kind of crap that we sometimes have to deal with in here. <laughs> bull. That's bull. Because if, if you come at everything with a negative approach, all you're going to do is surround yourself with negative things. This is realistic. This, that, isn't, I, this is realistic. This isn't positive or negative. This is the reality in which we're about, facing. You're talking about social contagious theory as being an evidence base. There's a lot of data out there that supports it. So you have the, you have the ability to impact and influence people with a positive approach of how to overcome these challenges. There's no doubt. Okay. Like if, I, if I hug you, you're more likely to hug me back the next time I see you, right? We mimic behaviors. Yes. And it can be used and we can understand how humans work for good. Today, we're talking about social contagion on mental health yes. conditions so, and, and teenagers who are identifying as mentally ill when they're not, their normal experiences, and how it's rewarded within the school system from social media. They're adopting an identity and how it's negatively influencing the development of destructive behaviors like self-injury, like eating disorders. Families have to have greater control over the curriculum and the development of, of um, how schools are going to respond to our children. We cannot give up that right, which is you're seeing, you know, you're, obviously this is a hot topic, hot button issue throughout our country is the role of the of families in their ability to control what is taught in and the curriculum within public schools to prevent this widespread indoctrination that is occurring from um, talking about um, gender dysphoria at a very young age, which is beginning to create confusion in kids to bringing up mental health and trauma in a way that confuses people to now like trauma is being misgendered compared to, uh, you know, somebody witnessing somebody die or a rape victim, right? Those are two ends of the spectrum using the same exact word, right? Because of this indoctrination process. And that is not helpful to mental health. That is harmful. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it in front of us as we see a generation of teens that are deteriorating. Let me ask you a question, and I'm going to throw out a scenario. I'm a parent. My child is 13 years old. I'm, this is a scenario. He's 13 years old, and he starts exhibiting certain behaviors. Maybe he's, um, he's cutting, and I notice he's hanging out with a group of kids at school, group of kids that maybe I suspect are not not of the best intention. Maybe they're up to like no good. Mm -hmm. I would think maybe a course of action that I would do um, if it doesn't get better is I might pull them out of that school. Maybe the school is the problem. Maybe the group of kids is the problem. How, how do you remove somebody from the situation if you think it's just going to perpetuate itself? Well, the most important thing you said here was the age. Yeah. So 
we often have to talk about things about what is developmentally appropriate. A 13-year-old doesn't have the same independence that a 17-year-old does, right? A 17-year-old can get behind the wheel of a car. Uh, a 17-year-old is much closer to an adult. Um, the, the choices of a, of a 17-year-old and being able to um, be able to have freedom and independence separate from their parents is actually greater than a 13-year-old. So when you're talking about exposure of a 13-year-old um, to a, a group or, or, or people that you believe are harmful or dangerous to your own child, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be that different than how we looked at it 25 years ago, right? You would remove that child from those situations to protect them during a vulnerable period. Now, we're talking about these things are multifactorial. So when we have multiple factors that are influencing someone's presentation, we're not going to just hone in just one. If somebody is self-injuring, that's serious. The deliberate self-harm is a predictor of later suicide events. It's associated with that. Even though it's non-suicidal self-injury, it increases the likelihood of creating harm onto oneself. There might be some mental health support that's needed and seeing a professional. The problem, which we're highlighting it, are a majority of the mental health professionals are just tools of popular culture and might even not know effective treatments or how to provide you as a parent with effective advice, parenting advice on how to respond. And worse, they might be driven to drugs in that situation as if they have an illness that is chronic. So we're highlighting those problems. My recommendation, you're in, you're in with a quality um, social scientist, clinical psycho- psychologist, or strong mental health professional who is aware of all these factors and has the, the ability to intervene and talk about all the factors that influence it so you can begin to manage it within your home so the kid can develop coping skills and be able to learn how to effectively push through a developmental stage in order to be accepted, to determine who you are, what your values are, the type of life you want to live, and how to get those needs met. These are things that are developmental processes and strong mental health treatment is about developing the skills for people to overcome these challenges and episodes. Unfortunately, it can be the opposite of that. It can mimic what is happening in society, which is you spend a lot of time, quote unquote, emotionally processing your trauma and that trauma being your the pain you experience on a day-to-day um, basis. And that is both reinforcing and then doesn't allow the individual to develop coping skills for that pain Rather, it's just swimming in it. And they're developmentally not at a stage to know how to Mm self-regulate. So it just becomes a repetitive cycle in which continued challenges come up in different environments over and over again. And the teen's not learning how to prevent being in those those self-destructive situations anymore. But as a parent, pulling your child out of a group of friends or a school for the parent may feel like the wrong thing to do because... Yeah, I just want to, so I want to be careful with making that blanket statement. I know, Obviously, I know. that's an extreme situation and it might warrant that. But the chances are you're going to pull them from one environment into another environment and the same situation is going to occur, right? The same group. You can't protect everyone from society as a way of providing care. You have to be able to change they resp- the way they respond to those situations. 
But yeah, there certainly would be some situations that are extreme enough that you must be removed from that environment and be placed in a better one. Because we talked about how these things emerge in clusters and that particular school environment um, might be having more frequent, like my daughter's school. Yeah. You know, if my daughter wasn't a really strong leader and strong person, you know, we would consider removing her from that environment mm -hmm. because that's out of control and that's out of control from the leadership in that school environment too. So to sum up what you just said, parenting is a very difficult process if you want to do it correctly. And it seems to me that we are in an instant gratification society where, hey, I don't want to do all that. Just give me a very quick solution. And then that leads us down that path of negativity. And then that leads us down to what we have right now, which is that social contagion where, where kids, 13-year-olds are now, well, I'm not getting any answers or getting anything from my parents, but look at this. I'm getting all of this information online. I'm searching now for what I believe is my problem, my illness, what I feel, you know, and, and how easy information and ideas are out there. That's what's going to amplify. That's what's going to propagate, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you put all that information out there and you only have one side to it and you try to limit any any contrarian viewpoint or any other side, that's even worse. Now they're, now they're, they're getting false information and they're passing that along and they're keeping it inside of that head. Of on, on that side, I agree because yeah. I believe the negative stuff gets promoted higher because there's more engagement happening on the negative side and people don't generally seek out positive things through social media, nor do they engage with it enough that it's constantly put in your face. And they're going to surround themselves with friends that are similar, which, you know, again, once they start to do that and they adopt the, those friends... Um, that leads, I believe that would lead to some social contagion as well. Yeah. But surrounding yourself with a group of friends, if they're, no, if they're, I understand if they're but good I, friends, it could really I'm not, benefit I'm not you. saying that in a negative way yeah, at all. Yeah. I'm saying, but that's kind of how I, I believe it works, right? That's where your friend groups come in and, yep. and that. Yep. And another comment, obviously there are a large percentage of the population, even teenagers that are kind of immune to this. Um, it doesn't mean it's affecting everyone in the same way. And that's why when you talk about, science in the social science fields, whether it's sociology or psychology, you want to understand trends and how they emerge. Who's this affecting? Why? What are the interpersonal environmental aspects? What are the intrapersonal? What are the personality factors? Who is at risk? And when we're seeing the at-risk population begin to increase and increase at really concerning uh, rates, right? Like doubling in some situations, then we have to look at the role of environment and culture. So that's what we're seeing over the past 25 years in the United States culture. We can't speak for everyone. We have an international audience here, um, but we know some of these, these trends aren't unique to the United States. So I was looking at Scandinavian countries, 18% um, teenagers who are self-injuring. Looking at Taiwan, 18% of teenagers that are self-injuring because social media is now global. It's a, it's, we're connecting ourselves to, to other countries. So we can begin to look at the effect of that exposure. The other thing is like, listen, it's identifying with your mental health diagnosis is now becoming big business. So we see social media influencers, YouTube channels, just about your diagnosis. And that's your community. That's your support community. And so if you're an influencer around that area and you have adopted the diagnosis of like bipolar or an eating disorder, for example, well, then your following is based on those components of your identity. 
And if you're being, uh, if, if you're being rewarded for it through your following and through your likes and you're, you're finding a way to um, celebrate certain actions and behaviors as if they're positive, like with the pro-Anna sites, like this is about self-control and this is about discipline. Or if you're, you know, you've self-identified as ADHD, it's now a justification for your difficulty in completing certain tasks. And, and it relieves some of that like anxiety or distress for your inability to do things which you've been uh, punished for in some ways, whether it's at school or at home. You're now feeling accepted for your inability to do things, right? And you're adopting this idea that you're ill is the reason that you can't do it. These are trends in society. We have to investigate them, not deny their existence. And we have to understand the prevalence rates that exist so we understand how much this has emerged in society so we can do something about it. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.